my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. What's up? I'm Laura Carrenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. Welcome back to Adlandia. Alain Sylvain from Sylvain, a strategy consultancy, is joining us today. Before we get into the interview, Laura and I have a little riff. What have you been thinking about lately? What have we been talking about lately? So Alexa, as you know, I've played sports the majority of my life and I'm constantly thinking about ways brand marketers can get in and support women's leagues, female athletes. And recently I caught an ad from CarMax that features Sue Bird and Steph Curry. And an example of where a brand not only got in to highlight a narrative and celebrating Sue Bird's accolades, you know, juxtaposed against Steph Curry, but also went a step further and signed on to be an official partner of the WNBA. 
that type of next step action of not only leveraging media and marketing, but to actually go to the next level and invest in the growth. I think it really brings it back to a conversation we've been having, which is not just how consumers are shareholders, but us as as media buyers can think about approaching the work we do through a shareholder lens. And so I think, again, this CarMax example is one in which um, I hope to see more of. You and I are very different. You were in sports. I was in the arts. So I totally agree in terms of from the marketing advertising side. And I love the kind of perspective as an athlete. I don't think you're alone. So a lot of females out there who are the decisioners on dropping money on a car and many other consumer products. So how do we have a conversation at a brand inside at the table with a partner to say, yes, okay, I want the big volume numbers. But actually, if I go left where nobody else is, I'm going to have something that is so much greater with so much more fandom potential. And I'm doing the right thing. I'm standing up for what I believe in. You know, Alexa, building on that, I think it's the difference between being a marketer that's there to borrow audience to being an active participant who's invested. Yes. It's being invested in the growth, not just of the sport, but of the audience and community that exists within it. These are the buyers of your service or product. And the future buyers. When we were at GE, we used to talk about this all the time. Who are the future buyers and who are the future shareholders of this company? Are we even talking to them and not talking at them? Are we opening them up to how we're creating something that they can either A, be a part of, B, invest in, right? To say, not only are we looking for our buyers, we're, that's how you're investing in your buyers in a different way. I would actually say that this is really integral at the top, at the CMO level, to be thinking about this, right? And the buyers on the agency side should be thinking about this on the day-to-day. CMOs should be requiring this type of thinking. And so that when they're sitting down with a media plan, they are not just looking at where they're showing up. They're looking at where they're investing, period. So with that, Alain Sylvain from Sylvain. We'll be right back. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome back, Adlandia. We are here with a good friend, Alain Sylvain, founder and CEO of Sylvain. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I'm happy to be here. I have been lucky enough to work with you. And I'd love to hear from you, not only your description of Sylvain, but what kind of work you've kind of evolved into over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for asking. You're asking at a good time too, because yesterday was our 11 year anniversary. So, congrats. Yeah, thanks. The, the answer to that question has changed a lot over those 11 years, but basically, um, Sylvain is a strategy and design consultancy. Um, really, what we try to do is help companies imagine the future of their products and their brands. And we do that through innovation consulting. So, helping companies like um, imagine what new needs are around product experiences and also brand strategy. So, thinking about, you know, what is the brand? Who is it for? Where does it fit in the world? It's really all designed to um, to help companies progress and help society at large progress, uh, you know, help the needs of people progress, all that. What's the origin story? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. When you start these things, um, sometimes it's a little bit of the dream of entrepreneurialism, which was definitely my case. Like, I wanted to make something. I wanted to build something from scratch. But also... I worked at Mother, which was like a, and is a, at the particular time it was like a very avant-garde and um, creatively driven agency. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted a little bit of that, but I also wanted a bit of the management consultancy, buttoned-up, rigorous, discipline, marketing, best practice. And so I'm, I kind of, I worked at a similar place to Sylvain, and really felt like if my boss could could do this, I could probably do it the way I want. But I convinced a couple people to join me, and those people are still with me, and. Um, and yeah, that's that's the that's the origin story. You guys are a B Corp. You're one of the only consultancies that's a B Corp. Why why was that important to you? 
It wasn't, it wasn't right out the gate. It was maybe four years ago. But I don't know. I mean, I, I really struggled with the work we do. You know, how do you advocate for brands and advocate for consumerism in a world like, like we live in now? And is there a way to make our work a little feel a little bit more virtuous and feel like it has a soul and has a purpose, you know? And um, the, the B-Lab set up this certification, which is pretty amazing. You know, companies that live up to a certain standard and they're, they're, it's not easy to live up to these standards. You know, we, we, we applied the first year. We didn't get it. And, and we have it now. And by the way, you need a score of 80 out of 100 to get it. And we have like an 80.4. Okay, so we, we barely made it. And that explains your other point, which is that it's really hard for consultancies and agencies to get the certification. They're very, you know, when we did it four years ago, there was one other one in the entire world out of the 20,000. And they were um, a, a consultancy like ours, and they were focused on the nonprofit space. You know, we work with some pretty serious violators of the environment and some pretty, some pretty fucked up companies. Can I say fucked up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can. <laughs> so, so the B-Lab certification really helped reconcile, you know, what, who we were as people, the work we do, and just made sure we're doing right by the consumers we represent, the employees, the clients, all that. And for anyone who's not familiar with that certification, what does it entail? Yeah, they, they track a number of things. They track like um, your environmental footprint, like how do you, how much impact do you have in the world when it comes to the environment? They track your, you know, how much are you engaged with a local community? Um, do you volunteer and, and that sort of thing? And then also how do you treat your employees? Um, like thinking about employee well-being and policies and so on. So the thing about us is that we were treating our employees well, but we didn't have policies in place to really hold us accountable to it. So the the B certification helps us just really be buttoned up in terms of like, you know, what is our, um, you know, parental leave policy? Like, we, of course, we always had it down, but why is it among the best in the world? Like, let's put it to, let's put it on paper. I don't know if that's among the best in the world. I'm just saying. Right. You know, things like that really forced us to, just put pen to paper and hold ourselves accountable. Yeah. So, so Patagonia is the biggest um, certified B corporation, and, and and they're famous, obviously, for their environmental footprint. So we 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 kind of look to companies like that, Ben and Jerry's, and some you know some of these other companies that are getting a lot of attention these days for for making wise choices, and we want to be among that group. Getting the B Corp certification, you talked about holding yourself accountable working with companies or partners that were doing things maybe that are less than ideal, right? For society, for the environment, et cetera. Has that certification cemented even a way of thinking about who you partner with? Like what clients you do take on? Do they have to adhere to something? So we're working on that. We're thinking about whether we need to create some sort of policies to make that, you know, some sort of um, litmus test for what qualifies as a client. In the work we do, there is still like an internal sort of evaluate, evaluation you, you make um, to determine, you know, who do you want to work with and should you work with them? And that, that's like, a, that was true all along. And for me, you know, for the most part, it's about companies that are responsible when it comes to environmental impact and so on. But also, like, does it make you feel good? Like, do you want to, do you want to really be among, and it's a hard, it's a, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. The thing I've learned in leading an agency is recognizing in as much as what you know you do well, um, it's as important to understand the areas in which you should not operate. And I'm curious to know over the last 11 years, what you've learned distracts from the mission or at least the, the mission for, for where we're headed in, in present tense. 
Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good question. You know, for what we do in Alexa knows this, what we do, we, we do a lot of upfront strategy work. So we help build brands and, you know, develop ideas that are ready to go to market. And as soon as we're done with a project, clients are like, let's take it to market, you know, so that immediately they want a creative agency or a design agency or something like that. And if I'm honest, we really were a strategy driven company. We do strategy better and among the best in the world, right? That's what we aspire. I'm a, I'm a strategist, the founder and CEO is a strategist. Over the years, we've developed a pretty solid design capability. And Alexa and I have talked about this too. You know, it, it, I wanted to get better and we're still bringing on people. We have about five or six designers. Um, so sometimes we, it's only natural for us to take the brand work to design. Right. Um, but it's always a weird sort of thing. It's like we're building our design capability, um, but we've, we've worked on some pretty amazing design challenges. So that's just design. The next step, though, like the creative communication side of things, so even potentially even the experiential side of things, like we don't know how to do. So what we often do is we'll, clients want us to take that on. Clients want us to own that work because they feel like it's got some strategic foundation and some strategic rigor. So what we'll do is we'll bring in friends. Um, you know, if, if an agency like Giant Spoon that we like, or if it's like a people that we've worked with in the past, we'll cobble together something and we'll play the, collect, the collective tissue. So over the 11 years, we've done that a few times. We did, we, had, we did like a huge campaign launch for Amazon last year for their luxury stores. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was not what I was expecting to do in 2020. You know, who wants to talk about luxury stores? Like campaign work? <laughs> like campaign work. All of a sudden, we have like art directors and we had freelancers and all that. So to answer your question, Laura, like we don't do campaign development stuff, but we're kind of thinking about it as, as a natural extension of where we can play, whether that's bolstering our design capability or even going all in on uh, agency work. What are the watchouts? Um, for agency leaders, particularly independents, as they're thinking about navigating and where you're saying, I can get up into this point. Could I take it on? Should I? Maybe. But if I clicked it in this capacity with another partner, one plus one equals three. Can you talk about that experience? Sure. No, it's definitely something I think a lot about. You know, there's a, there's a big trap in this work that we're doing. You know, we're trying to launch something and let it grow fast and be better than anybody else. We're stressed about cash flow. So it's very easy to be, you know, if a new opportunity presents itself, we've been trained to say we can do everything. Like that's kind of our jam, right? Like you need that? Yeah, we can figure out a way to do it. But the real lesson, the trap is, is hubris and arrogance and really believing you could do everything. And I've, I've fallen into that trap many times. And it's, it's important to stop and realize when you can't do something. Um, but meanwhile, you also have to be clever about how you grow. And, I, and if I could just tell you one quick story, and I think I may have even shared this story with one of you before. Um, we, we worked on this huge project for a, a strategy project for a, a financial services company. And I had this idea. I was like, yo, you guys need to do this event. I have an idea for an experiential concept, put it on the par of like Davos and the Aspen Institute. It's like something crazy is going to bring people together from all over the world. It's really interesting about profit and purpose. And this is like five years ago before people were talking about profit and purpose. Okay. And, and the clients were like, and, and I, I came up with a name. I came up with a sketch. I came up with a whole concept, right? I, I, I pitched it to the clients. And they, they, you know, that was the project, come up with ideas. And they loved it. They were, and this is a big uh, multinational financial organization. And they were like, let's go. And they looked at me and they said, "Go, we will give this project to you. Go build this event for us. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know the first thing about uh, events, like putting together an event. I don't know the first thing, how to pull that off. And so I had to go back and say, we can't do it. Um, and that, I think, was a huge lesson for me. It's like, and a very smart lesson is, is you know, know when to say you can't do something. The clients then asked 
me to be the play the client on the on the project and hire an experiential company. So we went out and hired an experiential company. And I got that invoice and I was like, I need to be in that business. Um, but, but, but yeah, that's, that's the trap, I think. Yeah. When I've worked with agencies that don't have a certain capability or skill set. In fact, Laura and I, when we worked together, when I was at GE, we used to, we used to think about publishers and media companies like this. We would go to them and we'd be like, this is what you're really good at. These are your best assets. These are the assets we want to work with. And this is how we want to do it. And I think that clients actually need to do that more. They need to do the work on the agency and say, this is why I want to partner with you. This is your special. This is, and Alain, you and I have talked about this, right? Like, this is your special. This is what you crush at. I need you to keep crushing there. And if you can be a partner to me in other areas and help me get to an agency or someone who can do that other thing really well. I trust you because I trust your taste. I trust your compass. I think that more clients actually need to need to think about that because I think it's also really easy to go to a big, big network and hand them everything. Talk about both of you, actually, Laura and Elan, right, are with independent shops. There are not a lot of independent shops around, uh, especially post-COVID. Can you talk about the decision to stay independent post the last year of of COVID? You know, independence is is a virtue is is who we are, and it allows us to do a lot of really exceptional things. And I have no qualms. Like I'm very clear about the places I would want to work in my life, and they're very very few. Um, and also, you know, places I want the people I work with to work for, and so it makes it very easy. There are very 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 few places where I would feel comfortable. Um, working, you know, knowing that we're a certified B corporation, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black American, like, you know, minority owned is an important part of how I view the world and who we represent. And we, if we were to get acquired that, that ethos would need to carry forward. And so it's, it's not something I, I think about, like, let's stay independent, let's stay independent. With, with that said, um, you know, we, we sometimes have conversations and it's interesting and, and you, you know, which gets to your other question about COVID we're out here hustling, like we're just trying to survive out here. I think the key thing I, w- I would I would say though to answer your question, Alexa, is like we quickly pivoted. You know, we we were really instead of waiting and to see what would happen, like what clients are going to emerge, like what's what new questions are we going to ask. We immediately started to do stuff, and you, you'll remember this. Like we we created like a digital learning school, like a school on how to how to deal with crisis. We, we just started making stuff like crazy. We created a podcast. Like we just started making tons and tons of guys. I started speaking like crazy. I went, you know, conferences and stuff like that. 2020, we ended up doing well, not well, not nearly where we wanted to be, but probably better than you thought. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was just a good way to stay busy. When you're talking about hustling, right. And, and thinking about finding ways to pivot, how do you get further upstream in this moment and not necessarily focus so much on the output? but finding ways to be a strategic partner that's helping organizations, brands, businesses transform their overall footprint. You know, I mean, that that's, re- it's really, to me, been about business transformation. Um, and that transformation doesn't necessarily have to be ripping up an entire playbook and starting from the beginning, but finding ways and, and new moments to provide value um, that isn't solely rooted in the execution. 
we've got to rewrite some of the rules upstream in order to be effective downstream. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing to bring up. I mean, we we are privileged in this way, if I'm being honest, because we are, we're a strategy consultancy. So strategy was already what we were doing. And so we were well positioned in this regard. It doesn't mean it was easy um, because even the most, you know, the savviest clients had no idea what was going on and what to do. I talked to some clients who really felt like this was going to be a short-term thing. Other clients thought it was going to be a long-term thing. You heard clients talking about L-shaped recessions, V-shaped recessions, K-shaped recessions. Like I was like, how many shaped recessions? But being upstream and already being in a place where we're talking to clients about their vision and they're already in the midst of transformation, it made it easy to, 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 to be relevant um, and for them to continue to ask us to do stuff. That's not true for all clients. And if you look at, if you look at our client list, we had a few that we were doing a lot of work with in the hospitality space, for example. Um, and, though, and it was chilling to send emails to those clients on March 13th and for some to get bounce backs. That's like those same clients we worked with are no longer at the company. It was like a very sobering thing. On the flip side, we were working with digital services companies that were killing, you know, like, you know, the unicorns. You all know what I'm talking about. We work with a lot of those. And they they just continued to 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 do work and, and look for insight. And it was almost like a luxury for them to to have to think critically upstream. But I if I'm I do think there's a there's an inherent challenge in strategy companies for being upstream in that you are not relevant for the entire cycle. In the same way there's a challenge for companies that are downstream who fight to be taken seriously when it comes to upstream strategic decisions. You know, I, I talked to so many production companies or experiential agencies or creative agencies that are like, you know, we wish we could shape the, the products or the brand that we're, we're working on right now. We just have to, we're just given a brief and we have to execute it. And that's not where we believe we can add the most value. There is this inherent tension between brand and product. Do you ever sit down with the chief product officer and you've sat with the chief marketing officer and you're seeing kind of a tale of two cities. Oh yeah. All the time. I guess the question is, is like, how do you reconcile that? How does, how do you reconcile that? And I think that we're in a really, I personally feel like we're in a really interesting place right now where brand is incredibly important and probably more important than it ever has been. Yet there are a lot of people sitting in boardrooms and leadership positions saying we don't need it. Right. How do you reconcile those things? And has the conversation changed in the last year? I don't think the conversation's changed in the last, last year. I think the rub has always existed going back when I was, you know, in the 90s. You know, like it's always been a thing. It's probably well before that, right? But what I think is interesting is that con- I think the way to answer that question is not through the eyes of the company or even through the eyes of Sylvain. It's through the eyes of the consumer. And, and the reason you, are, you can unapologetically say what you just said, which is that brand is everything that you do, is because as a, you know, consumers consume things on that basis. But in some categories and among some consumers, they believe there's a serious distinction between brand and product. They, they, don't, believe that they're, they don't believe in brands. They think brands are confusing and a distraction. They believe like, I just want something that works. And why are you charging me so much if it's, if it's like, I just want something that works. And I think that's actually where the distinction lies. It's not so much on the company side. I think it is on the company side. And I think, you know, the best marketers are people that get that. Yeah. That sometimes they need to reconcile and sometimes consumers view things differently. Um, it's really on the consumer side where I think there's a disconnect, not a disconnect, but there's like people are different. People are complex. They're human. 
I think looking at a number of um, campaign messages that were out in market over the last year, brand as permission is something that I've been thinking about based on actions you take over time that give you permission or don't um, to engage in conversation, um, to show up, you know, uniquely in people's lives and, and what that means. Yeah. What are the bets you're making in 2021? What are the things you're hearing from clients and other executives in the industry that are inspiring or shaping how you're approaching the immediate future? Thinking about like what, you know, some of the conversations we're having now, uh, some of the things we're being asked about now, and it's, it's pretty clear in my mind, you know, we, we, we're in the middle of a huge project right now with Nike. Um, and I usually don't talk about our clients and I'm, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but we're working on a huge project about, with Nike. That's really about the transition from being a wholesale brand to be, to, to being a, or a retail driven brand to being something else. And that something else is really about being direct to consumer. Um, we are getting tons and tons of briefs about how to maximize the one-on-one to one relationship with consumers. Yeah. So DTC is everything. Subscription is everything. Membership is everything. Premium service is everything. And we're doing that for every client. You look at our client list, every single client of ours is talking to us about, well, how can, now that we don't need retail as much, or now that people are online more, or now that we, as you said, which I think is a great point, like the permission, now that we have permission to play a greater role in the lives of consumers, what does that mean for us? So we're developing models like DTC models. And all you got to do is look around like, you know, Airbnb, Uber Pro, Spotify Premium, you know, TripAdvisor Plus, you know, it's just, and we're doing that in every single category. We're doing that in luxury um, where we work with clients like Chanel and Gucci and, and we're, we're doing that in mass retail. We're working with Nike and, and Amazon. We're doing it in finance with, you know, American Express. And, and you just, it, I'm not, this is literally every, but this is like the foundational change that's happening with COVID where people expect more from brands. They're captive at home. They're willing to spend money in the, in a right way. Brand is product. So they're looking for experiences that are rich. Yep. You know, they want, you know, month, you know, so-and-so of the month club. Like that's, that has a new significance and value in now than it, you know, more than it did two years ago. So I think, I think that's a big one, Laura, like, the, the idea of these like one-to-one relationships we're getting asked a lot about. And I don't know that there's an answer yet. You know, it's so interesting down to like this very tactical example. And I have been thinking about it for months now. I am waiting for the direct mail campaign of the year. <laughs> yeah. The canvas has changed. The level of intimacy that you can create and unlocking these things is down to the one-to-one level, you know, to your point. And then the ability to do that at scale through data and, and, and all of the other resources and tools we have available to us. I am all in on analog in, in 2021. Like I was reading something today about, you know, the Amazon box yeah. being the new out of home. Interesting. Yeah. You know, like like thinking of that as a billboard in your house, like that that canvas, you know? And so I'm just really interested in how those things can come to life in new and meaningful ways at an individual level, which I don't know in, in modern media, have we ever had the opportunity um, that we do now to really leverage that uh, in a meaningful way? Yeah. I mean, people are listening, you know, they're waiting for the first time, right? We're in a marketplace. Marketing was all about interruption before. And now it's, it's a completely different situation where people, their ears are perked up. They know there's some value to come in the mailbox you know, not only the analog mailbox, but, you know, I've never heard people talk so much about email newsletters 
you know, the past year, I'm, people are hyped about email newsletters. Like, what's your favorite email newsletter? Did you get, do you know about this newsletter? What is your favorite? Uh, the Progress Report by Sylvain. It's a uh, <laughs> weekly, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a, um, of course we have a newsletter. Of course we have a newsletter. We have a podcast too. Like, but you get what I mean. Like there's a, there's a new climate where not only are people paying attention a little bit more, I think people are also more aware of what marketing is. And I'm, I'm curious to hear what you both think about this because there, there's no mystery anymore. There's no mystery. There, there isn't like a Super Bowl spot that's going to come out of nowhere. It's going to blow us away and it's got aspirational. It takes us on a journey, an emotional journey. Things People get how these things work. They have access to these brands directly. They have access to celebrities directly. They themselves are brands, actually. You know, you know they, they, they present themselves as brands. They have their own logos and they have their own Shopify and whatever. Like people are brands. So what's the, what is the role of like big brand promises these days? And I think because of all that, People are much more open and sober about like brand messages and, and how to assess them. You know, there's there's tons of research around Gen Z, right? So, and, and everyone's talking about Gen Z, how they're they're gonna rip shit up and they're different and they're political. And we can go to Parkland, we can go to Greta. Like, there's so many great examples of how Gen Z's just truly impacting the world. And the funny thing, a lot of people think they have like an eight eight second attention span, you know, that they're just, you know, I don't know with my kid, I have a 14 year old kid who's like tunes out really quickly. But I, I saw, I read this thing the other day where, where the author said something about, it's not an eight second, um, it's not an eight second attention span. It's an eight second bullshit meter that they, they, they can evaluate stuff super fast and decide if it's good. Alon, I would love to ask this question as, as you think a lot about purpose. Um, how do we know we're effective uh, or created an experience that is going to have a lasting impact on the consumers and people that that we're engaging with through the work that we do. Yeah, yeah. We, we so there are a number of ways I would I would add to that. I think first, just on purpose for a second. Like the the um, a lot of people think of purpose just means uh, doing something socially good or, or politically motivated or good for the community. When actually the term purpose and the idea of a purpose is just that you have a reason to exist and you're you're really you have a, an agenda, you're doing something, you're up to something. So the, the point is businesses need to have a purpose that's bigger than themselves. Um, and that's that's a very generic and big thing and, and hard to quantify. But when it comes to like, how do, you, how do brands really know that they're impacting people's lives in this age where purpose and attention and all that is so limited? I think I've seen clients engage in to really prove out and make an argument, rational argument for how they're changing. But this is not rational, though. And the the reason I say that is we're talking about companies as organized humans selling things to humans. And that's a very emotional, qualitatively driven thing. And I think the the interesting question to me would be, like, how do you measure it qualitatively? How do you measure that you're really impacting people qualitatively? Like, how does that does that work for an investor? I think the answer is increasingly yes. I think the, the the role of companies is much more and more civic and much more of like community driven and political. And as a result, I think the expectations of investors is changing as evidenced by GameStop. Like in the nature of the investor's mindset is changing where it's going beyond rational. It's still there, of course, because that's how you get your check. That's how you get your dividends. But it's getting to this other place where you're thinking that you're capturing, you're understanding the nuance of brands and the emotionality of brands and like how it takes time, you know, sales overnight or brand over time. 
you know, and I, I think I think people are increasingly getting that. It leads me to a question, Alan, for you. Brand and brand strategy. How do you think the makeup of a brand now versus a year ago? For me, you know, we always talked about brands needed to have purpose. We always talked about that. But today, I think brands are, in fact, political entities, that they are active political voices in this climate. So they, they not, it's not about Republican or Democrat, but they are, they are animals of this political beast. They need to have a point of view and they need to represent something. And in a way, when you buy something, you're voting for something. And, and these brands are um, part of the democratic process and they, they, they represent their consumers. And they need to advocate for their consumers. So that's different than where we were before, where Marlboro Man showed some chest hair and people got hyped and they were like, I need, I want to smoke and look like the Marlboro Man. Now it's like companies are, are, are taking a stand and, and organizing movements and driving traffic where it needs to be and advocate, truly advocating for causes. So I think that is something that wasn't on the brand pyramid a year or two ago. Like, and, and it wasn't just about purpose. Like, again, it's not about purpose, but like, what truly are you contributing to the political climate today uh, when it comes to health, when it comes to race, when it comes to gender equality, when it, you know, and so on? Where, though, does bravery come in? Are we in a time that requires a different level of creative and business bravery from leaders and brands? Yeah, what a great question. Because I think. Yeah, bravery is an interesting way to put it because I, I think a lot of clients believe it takes bravery, and as a result, they 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 are paralyzed and they're afraid of being canceled and all this other stuff. Bravery, I think, might not be the right way to think about it. I think it's it's responsibility. You know, I, you know, bravery is just a um, it's just a reason not to do it. And you know, you, it's hard to tell your investors I'm going to be brave and I'm going to take some risk on your behalf. It's like, well, no, it's easy. I, I think it's less it's less about bravery. It's more about responsibility. Like if if you are in um, you know thousands of doors or whatever, or if you have uh, you know a database of millions of consumers, or if you have the ear of a political candidate, you have a responsibility to advocate for what your consumers care about, and that could be um, something truly political, like a political agenda, like the environment, but it also could be. Um, for high quality experiences and high quality products, and and so I, I I think bravery might be a trap because it's it yes of course, but it's also not everything. And again, I mentioned I have a fourteen year old kid, so you imagine a lot of this. I'm talking a lot about responsibility versus bravery. You know, you imagine my fourteen year old kid on the playground. He sees a fight in the playground. It would be brave to break up that fight. And to tell him, and we can put it in the context, like, be brave and stand up for what's right and, and break up that fight. Or we can put it in the context of, like, you are a citizen of the world and you have to be responsible for, for justice. And you, you just have to do it. And, I, and that's kind of how I view the role of brands. It's like, it's not about brave. It's about being responsible to a code that you committed to, whether that's through your consumers or that's in your charter or that's your board. And that's what you're really meant to hold yourself up to. Before you go, um, we play a game at the end of every episode. Alan, if you could get rid of anything in the world, what would it be? Oh, man. Can it be abstract or does it have to be like physical? Nope. Nope. Abstract. Anything. I think, I think bias, if I can put it that way. I mean, and it's not revolutionary, 
but we all carry so much bias from that we inherit and that we are socialized. Um, I experience it every day, not only as a victim, but also as a practitioner of people with bias. Um, and I, I often wonder what would the world look like if it was uh, just, you know, people were less inclined to favor the things that they're used you know, they've been told to favor. I think my life would be different. Um, you know, not only again as a victim, but also as a practitioner of it. What would you buy? If I could buy anything, I'd buy the ability not to buy anything. I, I, I'd truly buy a sense of freedom so that I never had to buy anything again or buy, you know, time. I'd buy time. Oh, I would buy time. And what would you do yourself? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I mean, if I was a better person, I would truly kind of sacrifice my own wishes and agendas and put those of others above mine. And, and I would actually work on behalf of other people. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for coming on. When I first saw Sylvain, and the more I've talked to people, you're kind of one of those consultancies and partners that if you know, you know. And um, I'm hoping that a lot more people discover you and they get to know. If people want to talk all things Sylvain, product, brand, or anything in between, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, and thanks for that, Alexa. It's it awesome. Um, Sylvain.co is where you can find us. Um, and yeah, on the internets. So great to, to get a chance to talk to you. And thank you so much. Um, hope you'll come back and visit us again soon. Yeah, and I hope to see you in person, both of you soon. Laura, I could have gone on with Alain for a while. I actually do believe that there is a structure of a brand that is changing fundamentally. But the thing that I think not a lot of folks are talking about is aligning your brand, if you're on the client side, with an agency that has purpose, with an agency that is actually potentially making you better, not just in your creativity, not just in your strategy, not just for you, but also making you better because they are choosing to be better. And I think what Alain has done with, you know, the, the more tangible example of becoming a, uh, a B Corp and pushing himself there when a lot of agencies weren't, but also the way he works in terms of really acknowledging clients what I am going to be doing in the future is really looking at where can I help my clients become more conscious and better and more thoughtful by doing business with me. You are better by doing business with me. Exactly. So on that note, here's to being shareholders and doing better business at Landia. Laura, hit it with the list of all of our friends and family at iHeart who have been so good to us and helped us get back on air. Big thank you to Bob, Connell, Carter, Andy, Eric, Gail, Val, Michael, Jen. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We'll see you in two weeks. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. It's brand new season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.